Welcome to Market Corner Conversations, sponsored by Foresight Health. This is where outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Market Corner Conversations is Foresight Health's regular podcast series. It explores the intricacies of market-driven health reform. We dig deep into the U.S. system's structural inefficiencies. We explain how its artificial economics and distorted business models rob the American people of the great health care they deserve. We identify and talk with innovative companies that are reinventing healthcare delivery by being better, faster, cheaper, and more customer-friendly. Today, we just have a terrific program. Meryl Guzner, the former editor of Modern Healthcare, is our guest. Meryl and I happen to live in the same neighborhood of Chicago, in Chicago, the Lakeview neighborhood, and we periodically have breakfast together, and I expect this will be just like one of our regular breakfast conversations, which we schedule for an hour and invariably go on for almost two hours. And Merrill has a, had a very distinguished business career before he made the mistake of getting into healthcare, and he, we're going to have him tell us about that in a minute. But anyway, Merrill, thanks so much for joining us on Market Corner Conversations. It's a blast to have you on. Dave, thanks for having me. Yeah. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, why don't we jump into it? Why don't you talk to us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in, in healthcare and and uh, got to where you are today. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I was a kid from the 60s uh, who, uh, you know, was socially concerned and went into journalism, which was, you know, the Watergate era and not untypical of people uh, in that era. And uh, when I got into journalism, I went into business writing, business and economics writing. And I uh, started uh, at a small newspaper in Hammond, Indiana, moved to Chicago at Crane Chicago Business, and eventually wound up at the Chicago Tribune, uh, where I served as both a foreign correspondent, a uh, national correspondent, and eventually as their chief economics correspondent based in Washington. And it was really when I was in Washington in the late 1990s when the whole debate over the prescription drug benefit for Medicare sort of began. They didn't have one at that time. It was seen as a big flaw in the Medicare program. And I was covering some of the hearings for old-time health care experts. will ring a bell, perhaps. The Bro Thomas uh, you know, right, hearings, right. and there was a commission that was headed by a very young wonder kind named Bobby Jindal, who later went on to become governor of Louisiana, who was running that commission, where there was all kinds of meetings, and I sort of got immersed in healthcare policy. Uh, and, of course, thinking about the drugs and, and the drug industry and the debate at the time, which was all about innovation and how, uh, if you were going to have a prescription drug benefit, uh, that would eventually mean that Medicare would have uh, price controls. And if you had price controls, uh, <laughs> the, that would, it would put a damper on innovation. Well, I had been a business and economics writer for two decades at that point, and uh, I had never heard this argument before. I had never covered the drug industry. I had covered automobiles. I had covered steel. I had covered machine tools. I, in fact, I had been <laughs> sent to Japan because of the, you know, my expertise in automobile manufacturing and the trade conflicts and you know competitiveness issues and quality issues. And 
and one of which, by the way, was about health care. You know, you had this situation, the automobile manufacturers would say, wow, you know, we have to spend an extra $1,000 a car because right, of our excess right, health care right. costs was right. part of the argument at the time. You know, I, I remember that, that Clinton economic summit in Little Rock, which ultimately triggered the whole Clinton reform, but where they, the, the big issue was that, uh, you know, Ford spent more on health care than it did on steel for cars and uh, – that's how we st- we started out Clinton health care reform because of a cost-based issue and it ended up turning into something else. But anyway. Well, right. I, well, I was in Japan at that time. and But in the years leading right up to that, that was my entry to thinking about health care, was just thinking of it as a cost problem. And and so by the late 1990s, so now I'm back in Washington, I'm back in the United States, I'm in Washington, and I'm following this debate over a prescription drug benefit. And so here I had been covering companies that said, you know, if we don't invest in in new products, if we don't invest in new processes, if we don't invest our scarce dollars in R&D, we're going to become less competitive and we're going to lose out on this increasingly globalized economy. And then here was this other set of companies now that I was listening to, the drug companies, going before the Burrow-Thomas Commission and saying, if you don't give us as much money as we're asking for, we won't invest in new products, we won't invest in R&D, and you won't get anything. <laughs> and I said, this was like, it was like a cognitive dissonant moment. I said, all right, what is this about? Who are these people, and where's this argument coming from? And long story short, it got me, (laughs) it's been a long story, not that short, but it got me deeply (laughs) engaged in the whole, that whole area. And I ended up writing a book that came out in 2004, published by the University of California Press, called The $800 Million Pill, that was a real investigation into, you know, where innovation comes from in pharmaceuticals and in healthcare, uh, and, you know, really taking a good look at the sort of, pipeline that flows from understanding basic science. You know, medicine really is uh, different in many ways than the applied research that you see in many other fields, uh, where you really can't come up with new products and new cures for disease, really, until you have a good understanding of the science and the natural science of the natural history Mm -hmm. of the disease and the biomolecular science behind that disease. And that really was a product of government-funded research and that, you know, we'd be better off pouring more money into that arena than into just trying to put money into the top of the funnel of the drug industry uh, because inevitably, you know, they're product-driven and they will continue making products they've always made, slight permutations thereof, until something really comes along. So I sort of wrote a whole book on that. And after the book came out, I just started, you know, I, li- I started a blog to promote my book. Uh, I was out of the daily journalism business. I was freelancing for the most part, and I was also running a project for a public interest group in Washington. And I just started writing this blog called Goose News, which became fairly well-read among a lot of, you know, top-ranked people, you know, policymakers, uh, you know, people up on Capitol Hill, uh, and influential thought leaders in healthcare, and I got a decent following, and uh, just got deeper and deeper into healthcare. You know, and then you know, long you know, we got involved in Obamacare, and so I've been basically writing about it until in 2012 I became editor of Modern Healthcare. I wanted to come back uh, to Chicago, where my grandkids lived. It was a great opportunity for me, a, a good mm-hmm. meeting of the minds with the with the publisher Fawn Lopez, and uh, I spent five years doing that until I 
semi-retired, I like to say, about a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, and uh, you know, continue to write my column for them and yep. continue to write and be active in healthcare. But it, it's been a long and interesting journey. Wow, well, a lot to dig in there. By the way, an eight hundred million dollar pill sounds like a bargain to me right now. <laughs> well, it was it, in those days. Tufts University has a center for drug development, and every year they, every couple three years, they do a study on what they claim to be the cost of drug development. And in those days, they said 800 million. It's up over $2 billion today. And so, uh, and, wow. and I think there's some, if you want to get into it, we can talk about it. I think there's some specious math in there. Let me put it that way. And, <laughs> and uh, we can talk about why I think it's specious. Yeah, well, you know what? You kind of developed a drug problem here, Merrill. You got so focused on the drug industry, it, it, it's hard to let go. Uh, well, why don't, we, why don't we get into that a little bit? Um, you know, as a as a country, we we spend eighteen percent of our economy on healthcare, and anywhere from you know twenty five to half of it is is waste. A, a third is a number a lot of people seem to agree on. Uh, and if anything, it seems like the percentage is increasing, not decreasing, particularly in the pharmaceutical area. So, how did we go from eight hundred million a drug, which sounds like an outrageous number for you know? R&D, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, uh, to now over $2 billion. How does How does that happen? Well, it's an interesting question. You know, you, you started by talking about waste there. And yeah. so, you know, waste is an interesting concept. Is it about utilization as waste or is it about price as waste? So we need, we need, we need to break it, or both. Yeah. And I think we need to break it up into its constituent parts. I don't see a lot of evidence in the pharmaceutical space that there's a tremendous amount of waste, uh, meaning that people are taking pills that they shouldn't be having. There are specific areas where that's true. So, for instance, the opioid crisis, you can argue a lot of the pain medications are unnecessary. There has been, uh, at least at the level of, you know, uh, the level of opioids at which people have been taking them. I think that you could say that in, in the uh, behavioral health space, uh, there, uh, there is uh, a lot of things that are of dubious value, okay? So, the, you know, they're being used for conditions in which they're really either you're over-medicating people or people are doing it for personal reasons uh, or uh, they're not really effective at all. Uh, but the main problem in the drug space, I would argue, is, is the price problem, is mm-hmm. that they're simply overpriced these days for the value that they're delivering. And so I think that we can, you know, begin to, you know, sort of take that apart and say, how did that happen? How did they get the kind of pricing power they have? And, and why has it actually grown more extensive in recent year, in recent decades, really? And, uh, that, you know, we can take which part of that you want to take on, but you know, there's a whole lot of issues there. It's about patenting. It's, it's about the games that they're playing. It's their control over the political process. I think that there is no more powerful political force in Washington than the pharmaceutical industry. They give more money. You know, they're only uh, 10% or 15% of the overall health care spend. Uh, but they, you know, they, they make a tremendous amount of money and they spend more than just about anybody else on lobbying. And that effectively has made them a very uh, rich and powerful player within the industry. Yeah, you know, the last I checked... Uh which I think was 2017 numbers, might be 2018 numbers. Pharma was was almost double the next highest industry in what it spent on lobbying. And that tells me they get 
a higher return walking the halls of Congress than they do out in the marketplace. <laughs> well, they're, they're intimately connected. And if you look at their uh, straight stock market-driven multiples, you'll see that as a percentage of sales, no industry in the United States has a higher level of profit as a percent of overall revenue than the pharmaceutical industry. It's up in the high 20s most years. And, uh, you know, they're only spending about 20% on R&D. I mean, their profits dwarf their R&D expenditure. Um, that's rather amazing when you stop and think about it. You know, the cost of goods sold, what it actually costs to make a pill, is well under 20%. It's less than either of those two. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's a big pro- they're a big problem. And, uh, but they're emblematic of... of of the kind of monopoly pricing that takes place in a lot of sectors of the healthcare industry. Right. And, and uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about that, since we probably spend more time thinking about the delivery system right. space, meaning doctors and hospitals and the clinics and, and, and the structures within those uh, channels of healthcare delivery. Uh, than I do, you know, these days thinking about <laughs> drugs themselves. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a rich... I mean, when I think about regulation, it's really got two basic purposes. One is to keep people safe and the second is to create a level competitive playing field so that new ideas can emerge, new companies that offer greater value can uh, get to market, get support and so on. And what's happened in healthcare is we've created probably thousands of monopoly and monopsony um, pricing power arrangements. Uh, you know, people say healthcare is local and it is and then the business of healthcare is local and I think that's why we tend to concentrate more on the providers and the payers because they're, they dominate certain local markets. But then you also have some of the same problems on the product side like you're describing. Um, but if, if, if I'm right that um, – we need to be pro-market, not pro-business in how we think about regulation. Um, what you know, if if you were HHS secretary right now and had had a free reign, President Trump said, you know, Merrill, we know you know drugs. Bring down the prices. What would you do? Well, actually, it's ironic. The Trump administration has put forward one of the more interesting uh, proposals that has come along in a long time, and that is, is the idea of benchmarking to international prices. There you go. And, you know, it is the Republicans on the Hill, even this week, as these hearings have gotten underway on drug pricing, have been screaming that we can't. One thing we're not going to put on the table is negotiations. Well, the Trump administration, uh, you know, put on the table, uh, fine, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to let other countries negotiate for us. We'll just benchmark to their prices and we'll outsource our negotiations to them. And, you know, it would effectively lower prices significantly because international uh, other countries, especially in Western Europe and, and in Japan, they pay 60, 70 percent, sometimes less of what we're paying for many of these pharmaceuticals. They also have much stricter utilization standards. In other words, they will carefully evaluate the price that they can negotiate vis-a-vis the healthcare quality that it delivers. In other words, how many quality-adjusted life years does this product mm-hmm. actually achieve on average for our patients? And if it exceeds a certain level, they'll say, we're simply not going to pay for that. 
And uh, that's, you know, the, the National Institute for Clinical Effectiveness, which makes, you know, NICE, which makes recommendations uh, to the National Health Service in Great Britain along those lines. And so, you know, we don't do either of those two things. We don't negotiate for prices. We don't set, you know, clinical effectiveness standards and cost effectiveness standards. And as a result, we pay the highest prices in the world for drugs. So that's one proposal they put forward. I, I you know, I thought it is very interesting. I think a proposal that I had mentioned in Modern Healthcare uh, in one of my columns uh, in the middle of last year, and I'm not claiming that what they're doing in California was because I wrote about it, but I had talked about this as an idea. And then governor, the newly installed governor in California, Governor Gavin Newsom, has actually put together a program. He did it by executive order on his first day in office. And he put together this program where what they're going to do is say, you know, if drugs are over a certain price, we're going to put them all into a statewide pool. We're going to encourage all of the, you know, the purchasing of them. We're going to create a pool authority. We're going to have the pool purchase the drugs for everybody who wants to join the pool. And at the very outset, I'll put Medicaid in that pool. You know, we'll put mm-hmm. all of the, you know, any insurer with a Medicare Advantage plan, uh, or if you're a PBM, any, you know, essentially, it's almost like a state-run PBM mm-hmm. in which they're going to negotiate pricing with the drug manufacturers and then distribute the drugs on you know to the various people who belong to the pool on behalf of the pool members and they're kind of a group purchasing thing and i thought you know that and what's what's interesting about that whole approach is is that it really takes so many of these drugs well let me start over here it so many of these drugs, the reason why their prices have gone so high has nothing to do with their cost of development or their cost of manufacturing. What has happened is, is that the drug, it's a pricing strategy by the drug industry to compensate the fact that over, you know, for several decades, the blockbuster drug mentality in the drug industry was is that we got to come up with these drugs like cholesterol lowering pills or blood pressure controlling medication which we or diabetic medication which actually gets sold to millions if not tens of millions of people and so we make a you know we price them relatively normally, you know, it might be two or three hundred dollars a month for a prescription. You know, the person may pay thirty or fifty dollars out of pocket, but the you know, the insurer is paying two hundred and fifty. But you have ten million people would buy, you know, like Lipitor. Right, right. And and you know, therefore they're making billions upon billions of dollars, three, four, five, seven billion dollars a drug. Now they have this problem that most of the new products, as those products have gone generic, most of the new products that are coming through the pipeline are uh, for much narrower indications. Right. They're cancer medications where you might have 30,000 patients instead of 3 million or 2 million patients. Or they may be a rare disease where you only have 5,000 patients or 10,000 patients. And so these drugs are being sold for not 300 a month. They're being sold for 10,000 a month. They're being sold for 20,000 a month. Right. And when you drop back and take a look at what's going on, what you see is that, uh, they're getting the same billion dollars. They're just doing it with a much smaller patient base and a much higher price. So that's <laughs> the strategy. And so if, what happens then is, is that this becomes extraordinarily problematic for 
the people who house these patients. So if I'm the insurance company who's covering one of these patients who gets cancer, gets right. a rare cancer or a rare disease, like I got the queen of spades, right? You know, <laughs> in a game of hearts, it's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? Well, and so know, these people get passed around like yeah. a hot potato, you know, among the insurance companies. The employers find themselves with a terrible record, you know, in terms of claims. And so their rates start going up. And so the, it, the, the idea of putting everybody into a pool and just simply saying, let's spread the cost of these expensive drugs widely, number one, so that you don't have this, the person who is the patient being mistreated by the system. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, what you do is you create the pool that has the buying clout to nego- at the state level, and California is as big as some of the European state countries that negotiate pricing. You have somebody who's big enough to carry the, the buying clout to be able to negotiate a decent price. Mm-hmm. It's just like automobile and, and admission standards, right? Nobody can afford to walk away from California as an auto market if they put up a tougher emission standard. Well, the same could be true in drug pricing. No company is going to, drug company will want to walk away from the entire market. And and if they do, you know, it'll be an interesting tussle to watch. So I'm going to be watching that experiment. Well, yeah, because I was was wondering about that. I mean, if a drug company has an effective drug under patent, even if it's for a relatively small segment of the population, even if you're up against California, if there's no alternative, can't they just continue to to price what the market will bear. Or, Perhaps they yeah, will, but yeah. I would say this, if if it can't came to that and I'm the if I'm running their pool, if somebody yeah. were running their pool and they're refusing to sell or they're saying this has got to be the price, then let's have a full and open hearing. Now we're dealing with a government yeah. you know body I that gotcha. has been created that could say let's put all the cards on the table and say why does it have to be this price? Okay. And we've never really had that behind some of these outrageous prices that we're seeing. It, you know, the pricing, you know, the, the, the rationale for pricing is a black box. Yeah, no, it's – well, what it, what it sounds like, you know, your example is we need to make so much money per drug. <laughs> we divide by the number of drugs that we're going to sell and that becomes our price. Well, uh, I, you know, from an <laughs> economic standpoint, if you follow – you know, if you look at the drug in yeah. companies as a business – and you look at their 10Ks and, you know, their 10Qs and you look at what's going on, you see that they're getting same levels of sales from fewer drugs to fewer people. Okay. Well, the math, the math is simple then. <laughs> and very good if you're a drug company. In drug industry parlance, it's the rise of the specialty drug. Yep. So specialty drugs are a special class, and they usually require special handling. They have smaller patient populations. They tend to be much more expensive. And as a percent of overall drug spending, it's now approaching 50% of all drug spending. Right. I know. I know. Even though generics are now like 85 90% of all prescriptions. Right. So that's where the money's going. So, so that's the problem yeah. uh, that we really have to deal with. You know, from a public policy perspective then, Merrill, in, in a way, you could say um, 85, 90 percent of the drug market is working. We're getting a reasonable price for the drugs that people are using. We've got a problem in 10 to 15 percent. 
It feels like if we looked at it that way, we could isolate solutions like you're describing in, in, in the California PBM experiment that could really attack the problem. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think the other part of the problem, you're also seeing some, which is in the generic space. But here yeah. you have a situation where some generics had their prices driven so low that the number of people that were actually in the business of making them became quite few and in some cases became sole source manufacturers. Right, right. And then some bad players grabbed a hold of that sole source manufacturer and just ran up the price. Yeah. And that's the Martin Screlly thing and, and uh, you know, and so you have some dysfunctions in the generic market as well. But again, these are public these are problems that they could solve right. by Changing the laws and regulation in Washington. So, what do you what do you make of um, Civica, the the new nonprofit drug manufacturing that is seeking to be almost a public utility of sorts? That at least for some of the hospital based drugs will will negotiate directly on behalf of health systems, sign long term contracts, and if necessary, manufacture off patent drugs um, uh, to create some competitive marketplace where there isn't one right now? Uh, I think it's uh, a, a great idea, mm -hmm. number one. Number two, it's, it's interesting to trace the sort of dysfunction that occurred in the marketplace that required that as a solution. Right. So hospital, this, these are hospital systems, uh, I think led by Intermountain, really, which right. helped get this whole thing started out in Utah. Uh, but lots of systems have joined on now. It's really been exciting to kind of watch to see how everybody said, oh, this is a really good idea. Let me be part of this. Um, but wh what they saw was is that so many of the drugs that went into shortage were drugs that had been generic, used in hospitals for a long time, and, and the price had been driven extremely low, which of course is good for hospital systems. You don't want the drugs that you're using inside the hospital to be inexpensive. So that's a good thing. Some, many of them were being purchased on GPO contracts. But this, this became a situation where you had very few manufacturers. And so doing, you know, playing the game because it was a very narrow margin business. And so only the most efficient manufacturer, he'd end up, or you know, whatever company it was, would end up getting the work, most of the work. And so the manufacturing capacity we had for a whole group of drugs was pretty small. And it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of excess capacity. And in fact, the way that a lot of these companies would operate that were in that position is, is that they would schedule their lines so, you know, for the three months, I'm going to do drug X. And this, that's what we figure all the hospitals in the country are going to need of this drug. And then, boom, it'll, we're going to switch the line over and make this other drug for the next three months. And, that'll, and we'll store that supply. And then, we'll, you know, when that runs out, we'll go back and manufacture it again. So what was happening, of course, was is that some people would stockpile some. They would miss estimate how much really was needed, yep. and then there'd be shortages. And so then when there were shortages, a gray market developed, and hospitals were having to pay through the nose who were running out of the drug, but they needed it for their day-to-day -day operations. So you had this sort of dysfunction that was born of the fact that the price had been driven too low. 
So this new group, Civitas, right, that's the name of it? Yeah. They're going to, you know, if you look at it just from, we're going to make enough so that everybody has enough, the marginal cost of production is so small on these things that you can afford to do that. And you don't have to run into the And they can also do, you know, just contract manufacturing, I think they're going to do at the start. So in a sense, they've created a group manufacturing organization to make up for the failure of the group purchasing organization model. Uh, And uh, hopefully it will work out because, uh, you know, this way, that way, you'll at least get, you'll both have adequate supply. And a cheap price. Do you, th- do you think there'll be a free rider problem or does it even matter? I mean, if, if I were a health system, I'd be cheering on Civicus and then saying, um, you know what? They're going to bring the price down. I don't need to join, <laughs> right? I, I can. And maybe that's a good thing. I'm not, not saying it isn't. But, but do you think we could end up with, with that type of dislocation on top of everything else? Well, you know, when you say free, I don't know how they're, now you're getting beyond my level of knowledge because I don't know how they're organized financially. But I don't know why more people coming to purchase from them would be a bad thing. I mean, it, they may have some production constraints and say, you know, you've got to put in some capital in order to expand and capacity to meet your needs. Well, I'm, I'm, what I'm actually thinking about is the, the competitor's response. Um, they're manufacturing the drug now. Suddenly, they've got a competitor. They're going to bring their prices down. They're going to uh, probably try and undercut to the extent they can, Civicus. You could look at it this way, though. You know, we have a – there is a fixed amount necessary. Yep. I mean, it varies from year yep. to year, but demand is not – exponential can't grow exponentially ever right and maybe the better analogy is thinking of it like military contracting it's a cost plus business Mm -hmm. so once you're at you agree that the price of manufacturing for a high quality good that can be used in healthcare meeting all the good manufacturing processes and we're going to tack on whatever the plus is is it 10 percent is it eight percent whatever the plus is to make sure that an enterprise can continue operating over time. You replenish its capital, you know, buy new machines, whatever it takes in order to be an ongoing enterprise. It's the same for a a for-profit company as it is for a non-profit company in many ways once you're down to a cost-plus business. The military, you know, Lockheed Martin, Boeing's uh, military arm, operate that way with 100% government purchasing for decades and decades. Right. You saw a tremendous amount of consolidation, but it, and it, it, it may lead to waste, but that's in the military, you know, the, the nature of the military contracting system. It isn't a given that it has to lead to waste. I mean, you can put so many criteria on a B-35 bomber that, you know, you're trying to build something, or a B-35 jet, you know, for all three branches of government. I covered this for a while right, years right. ago. Right. Well. Right, so yeah. that you can you can make something very expensive through the military contract. Well, the the eight hundred dollar toilet seat or whatever. Exactly, <laughs> right, but, it's not, right. but you don't have to operate that way in a right. cost plus. I, I think the interesting point you were making is it's the dysfunction that requires this solution. So we're bringing in sort of the equivalent of a public utility, and that by its very design is going to have some inherent level of efficiency. But absent the ability to have a competitive market. That becomes a response the government often turns to 
uh, as it does for for basic necessities, water, electricity, and so on. And uh, maybe that's maybe that's where we're headed. And what's wrong with having a utility model for something that's a critical public need, which is medicine? Yeah. Um, well, that would be another entire. And maybe we should do that, another Market Corner conversation. On that uh, that uplifting note, uh, Meryl, thank you so much for uh, being a part of this. I this is over already. I feel like no, I know. Well, started. I told you. It would, <laughs> it would be like one of our breakfasts, except we can't go on for an extra hour. But um, anyway, thank you so much. This was, this was a blast. And um, let's do it again sometime. All right, Dave. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks for having me on. Okay. Bye-bye. If you're frustrated with healthcare, if you want to understand how the system is reinventing itself through relentless bottom-up market-driven reform, please subscribe to our podcast at foresighthealth.com. Be a rebel with a cause. Help us fix American healthcare. Until next time, this is Dave Johnson.